0: You're listening to Booth One.
1: Greetings and long overdue salutations, podcast listeners. We've been away for a short while, but we are back. With renewed vigor and excitement, Gary Zabinski and Frank Taranjo, your hosts here. Welcome back, Frank.
2: Thanks.
1: Welcome to Booth One, everyone, where we celebrate the art of lively conversation about the arts and popular culture, and not just in Chicago, but around the globe. Am I right? (laughs) Oh Well, yeah. Tell the listeners where you've been, Frank, and a few of the maybe cultural experiences that you had. We were talking offline before we started the show. You've just gotten back from the...
2: From the Adriatic coast, the Dalmatian coast. We started off in KOTOR, Montenegro. And then went up to Dubrovnik in Croatia and split in Croatia. Then cut over to Ljubljana in Slovenia. Wow! And then to the capital of Croatia, Zagreb. And it was it was a great trip. It's a place that Europeans have discovered because it's a gorgeous coastline. But Americans haven't quite discovered it yet because it was all Yugoslavia in the early nineties. Yugoslavia broke up. It was a very ugly, bloody, and unfortunate war. But they've put the pieces back together again. The country have all separated. They're basically getting along and now the tourists are returning. I wasn't familiar with any of these places and I just decided to go and we stayed in Airbnbs and we discovered a wonderful service, an outfit called uh, mydaytrip.com, which is a car service that picks you up at the door of the Airbnb where you stayed and takes you to the next one to the door because the trains don't run because they're all different countries and the buses take hours and hours and hours. (laughs) I've been
1: on on a bus in Europe and it took forever to get from Spain to
2: Portugal. Yeah, and that's going through one country. But if you're going to two different countries, you have to stop with passports to get out of each country and passports to get into each country. So if you're in a bus, they have to empty the entire bus and do the passport ports up each bus. So I hear you went that.
1: to a few museums during your trip. <laughs> we did. Tell, me, tell us about the museums you went the to. The
2: museums we went to in Zagreb were the Museum of Broken Relationships, <laughs> which I guess is very famous. Um,
1: I just love this. Yeah, it's, you can go it's, online. It seems
2: very dark. It, it, it is dark, but it's also kind of funny, too. People who have had relationship issues, they will send in an item of some sort, a watch or a pair of glasses or a poster or like an item of clothing, and then there'll be a little story about what this had to do with their relationship and why their relationship ended not That's so well. so crazy. Why and, why yeah. would
1: that be popular? It's very and-
2: popular. There were a lot of people there, and, and, and I've talked to people. I said, I'm going to Zagreb, and they said, oh, you've got to go to the Museum of Brooklyn. Relationships, and so we
1: did. <laughs> then we A all... Schadenfreude there. Yeah, I think, kind of, kind I, of. Uh... but it was
2: really interesting. And then we also went to the Museum of Naive Art, which there that means uh, untrained artists. There are these wonderful paintings by not. Famous artists, but sort of grandma Moses type of people, people who were sort sure. of self taught. Sure. And I, I bought a bunch of postcards and stuff. That was, but awesome. the cool thing about the places we went to, they were all kind of living museums. Like in Split, Croatia, it's right on the sea, so it's beautiful and there's all these wonderful beaches and stuff, but there's also the oldest continually operating Roman palace from like 200 AD. A Roman emperor, Diocletian, I think was his name, retired and built this huge palace. It is not ruin. It's still operating. I mean, it's been adapted, and they've added homes and stuff in there, but all the walls are still there, and everything is still intact. And the basement, these catacombs, are huge, and they filmed uh, a lot of um, Game of Thrones there. Sure. Every place we went to was was pretty much jaw-dropping in terms of beautiful... Every single place was just. I could have stayed a week in every place. And somebody said, "What you like best?" I'm like, "I couldn't tell you." So five way tie. For Sounds first. fantastic.
1: It was great. Yeah. I'm going to have to tag along on one of these trips with no, you and great. you and Dan. One of these. We'll do days. a remote broadcast. So. Well, you look great. You look rested. And I look. Tan, and you look probably. ready to be back.
2: Yeah, I am ready to be back. Yeah.
1: We're going to the theater tomorrow, aren't we?
2: We are supposed to. Yeah.
1: Yeah, we're going to see The Music Man mm-hmm. at the Goodman, directed yep. by Mary Zimmerman. Yeah. Looking forward to that. Mm-hmm. Opening night. Yeah. I'm so pleased to uh, welcome someone. Joining us today in the booth is one of Chicago's longstanding theater scholars and critics, veritable font of information. Mm-hmm. He's been described as a walking encyclopedia of American theater and uh, insight about the performing arts. Please help us welcome Mr. Jonathan Abarbanal. Hey, Jonathan. Welcome.
0: Thank you very, very much, Gary. Thank
1: you for sitting through the uh, Dalmatian Coast stories well, with I, us. Well, I had
0: all sorts of questions I wanted to ask Frank about it, because uh, it's a a spectacular part of of Europe, and uh, I hope to be there in about... a year, there's going to be an international theater conference, actually in, in Serbia, oh. at Novi Sad, which is one okay. of the famous mountain cities. If I can arrange it, and the timing is right, I might take a, what in Turkey they would call a gullet cruise down the Dalmatian co- coast. I would love to do that. Oh, I'd recommend it's it really highly. highly. Yeah. Well, you've
1: been reviewing theater in Chicago for over 50 years? Mm, Nearly 50 mm, years. Let's.
0: let's uh, what is this? No, this is 1919, 2019. Last time I looked,
1: Jonathan, yes. Uh, let's call it 50 years. Let's That's call a, it that. Yeah, yeah. Let me tell the yeah. folks a little bit about you. You can fill in the blanks. I can't possibly talk about everything that you have done in your life. It's absolutely amazing.
0: I forgive you, Gary. Jonathan is the past chair. <laughs>
1: Don't let me turn your head either. Is past chair of the American Theater Critics Association. Did you know that something like that existed, Frank? The American theater um american theater critics i'm not Association, surprised that it does the exist. atca the only organization for print and broadcast and news media theater reviewers he is theater editor for the windy city times newspaper and is senior writer for chicago footlights magazine also a one half of the dueling critics program heard weekly on public radio station wdcb for seventeen years, Which Jonathan is the College of DuPage station. College of I DuPage. Have to throw that in since it I taught there for many it, it years. It is indeed. For seventeen years, Jonathan was theater critic for Chicago Public Radio station WBEZ. Fifteen years, he was a featured columnist for the National Weekly Backstage. Backstage, does that still exist?
0: It still exists, but it transit. There was a sale; it was sure. sold, and it transitioned into being a publication essentially focused on TV and film yeah. rather than theater rather than the theater chart.
1: yeah for 10 years he wrote a monthly theater column for north shore magazine he has also written for american theater magazine chicago magazine chicago sun Times, chicago tribune the chicago reader show music stage bill variety and many other publications this is fascinating his own plays libretti lyrics and review sketches have been performed in chicago at the center for new music court theater bailiwick rep theater, bam, and the Second City. Born in Chicago, he attended Tufts University and Tufts in London on a year-long concentration in theater studies, taught previously at Columbia College, Chicago, and the University of Wisconsin, Milwaukee, and you are currently an adjunct lecturer at the UIC School of Theater and Music. That's the University of Illinois at At Chicago. Chicago. Well, you're our first theater critic to be on the show. Are you aware of that? No. (laughs) No.
0: The no. first theater could oh Pressured well I better I better set the bar, set the bar high or yeah. should I or should I set it low I don't know
1: <laughs> I think the bar has already been set in this town high, yeah. <laughs> Here's a very broad thing to start with. How did you find yourself in this profession? What was your journey to theatrical criticism like? I I mentioned that you went to Tufts University and you studied theater on a very intensive program.
0: I did. I would say, broadly speaking, very few individuals who are theater critics grew up saying, when I grow up, I want to be a theater critic. (laughs) That's probably true. That rarely, rarely happens. There are some odd cases where it was true. Frank Rich the uh, distinguished former theater critic for the New York Times, wanted to be a theater critic all his life or since he was an an adolescent. Most of us fall into it one way or another from doing other things. And I can tell you through my years of experience as a member of the American Theater Critics Association, we've had some very distinguished theater critic members who were in one case, uh, theater critic for the St. Louis Post-Dispatch, the main paper down there, who had been a, a, a sports reporter and was transferred somehow. He had a, a private interest in theater, and when they needed a theater critic, he made the transition. We had another member, I will not mention the uh, the city, who had been the television writer, and when he was transferred to the theater desk, he considered it a demotion. Uh, <laughs> So it comes about all sorts, of, uh, all sorts of ways. In my case, I never studied journalism, but I wrote for, I learned by doing, I wrote for my... High school paper, and I was uh, uh, the arts editor of my university newspaper, and I began writing reviews outside of the university paper for one of the free weekly papers that emerged in a lot of cities in the in the late 1960s and the 1970s, and I started writing for one in the Boston area when I was still a student at Tufts, and those were my first, let's call it semi-professional reviews. I wasn't paid for them, but I got the theater tickets to you know, all the pre-Broadway shows that, that Boston was still a, a tryout town. Always there. a uh-huh.
1: valuable perk, yeah. yeah.
0: And in the meantime, I was studying theater, and the more I studied, the, the better my writing about it was, and the more I wrote about it, and I had to think and focus on analyzing a production, and what made it good, or what made it not good, what worked, what didn't work, these things complemented each other. I also studied at Tufts, and in London, I I, I was a what they call a double major, which back in my day was still rare, and now it's, I think, quite common. Mm-hmm. But I double majored in theater and in history. You know, they go together. The, 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 the history of theater is the history of civilization, especially Western civilization. You look at architecture, you look at the history of fashion, you look at geopolitics, the history of religion, and the arts reflect all of these That's things. That's true. And none more accessibly and directly than theater. It's not abstract like painting can be or like dance can be or a musical orchestral work mm-hmm. can be. It's very direct. You, mostly you see theater and hear it in your own language, and it speaks to you. I use my history background as well as my theater background r- virtually every day of my, of my life professionally. So.
1: You also spend some time as an actor,
0: I started out as an actor. I think a lot of people who get involved in theater in various capacities, not just theater critics, are drawn to it first doing the eighth grade play or whatever, sure. doing the high, school, the high school play so forth as an actor. And it's fun and you do it. And I worked professionally for a short time. I did uh, several seasons of professional summer stock around and about and a few things in Chicago. And I did all of these things: acting and writing for initially for underground newspapers in Chicago and so forth. uh, All at the same time, I was an early member of the Off Loop Theater Movement in Chicago, working at the Lincoln Avenue Theaters, uh, the Kingston Mines Theater Company, where Greece uh, uh, kind of put it on the map, but Mm -hmm. it did other things too: the Body Politic, the Peripatetic Task Force, uh, the Chicago (laughs) Extension Improvisational Theater. uh, I worked for two and a half years in that with Del Klaus, where he developed what they now call the Herald, long form improvisation. And all of this churns up, churns up together. And eventually I found I was better as uh, analyzing theater in one way or another than I was going to be as an actor. Hmm. I was probably not going to be a great star as an actor. More's the pity for American theater and American I, I was, was going to say, what a loss. But that's the way it turned out. So uh, I began to focus on literary management, dramaturgical work, and written criticism. And I uh, gave up really acting probably by my late 20s. I stopped acting in, in, entirely and focused on other aspects of theater. Yeah.
1: I went to a uh, conservatory type Program as well for college, and one of the things that one of my professors once said to us early on when we were freshmen anything you want to do in the theater, know everything. But what he meant by that was learn as much as you can about every aspect of theater craft, the profession, the history, and keep yourself interested in the world at large because theater is always a reflection of where we are now. Are those Also good things for a good theater critic to know? Everything?
0: Absolutely. Absolutely, though. And and I'll I'll get back and I'll give you a serious answer, but before I do, you may recall the exchange from The Importance of Being Earnest by Oscar Wilde, where Lady Bracknell, the gorgon of a potential mother-in-law, is interviewing a man who wants to marry her, her daughter, And she says, I've always been of the opinion that a man should either know everything or nothing. Which do you know, Mr. Worthing? And he says, I confess I know nothing, Lady Bracknell. And she says, I'm glad to hear it. You know, one should never tamper with, with pure ignorance, you know, with native ignorance. Anyway, I think whatever aspect of theater you go into, whether it's directing or designing, even playwriting, and certainly criticism. You really need to have a good grounding, this is my personal belief, in theater history and theater literature. You need to have read widely, as deeply as you can, but certainly widely. Be familiar with the great classics of not just American theater or English-speaking theater, but of world theater, even though most of us will read those, whether it's a Russian play or a German play or a French play or a Chinese or Japanese kabuki play. We're going to read them in an English translation, but at least we can study the form and be, be familiar with it. The more you know, the better, because theater does reflect the society which creates it. The marvelous thing about theater is you, you look at, you say, you consider some a Greek tragedy, whether it's Medea or Oedipus, the king, the great, great tragedy. And it was very specific to its time and place. And yet the universals of it, how mankind, each of us individually, must endure and must undergo suffering and hopefully will gain wisdom by that suffering, that's a universal. It's as true today as it was 2,400 years ago, and you have to appreciate that. And when I make my students, my freshmen, my first year students, when I'm teaching Introduction to Theater, and they are theater majors, they can't quite understand why they have to read a couple of Greek plays. I have them read a comedy as well as a tragedy. Or you know what Ibsen and a House has to do with them. I say, you know, one one day, maybe it'll be 10 years from now or 15 years from now, you know, you'll find yourself playing Oedipus the the King, or you'll find yourself playing Hedda Gobbler, or you'll find yourself playing Medeo, or you'll find yourself in a Chekhov play. And then, someplace in rehearsal, a light bulb will go on and you'll say, Aha, that's what Professor Abarbanel meant. All right. <laughs> that's why he had us read this stuff and study this stuff. It's and not they'd be lucky made. to be in
2: any of those shows you mentioned. If they're in a production yeah. of any of those, they'd be very lucky yes. to do that. Yeah. <laughs> they're wonderful.
1: They're, there are reasons why plays. certain plays are done over and over Mm -hmm. and over and over again. Uh, It's not just because people like them. uh, It's because they are reflective of a more universal, more universal themes, um, Mm -hmm. more universal picture of our world and of humanity as a whole, I think.
0: The ones that no longer speak to us are, you know, no longer are part of the, the repertory. Now, certain, sometimes a very credible play is, Forgotten, dismissed for various reasons, and is rediscovered at some point, and it's where have you been all my life? Sort uh-huh. of a, a reaction, mm-hmm. and uh, it's reinvented in in certain ways, and it's not necessarily. I don't mean reinvented through a uh, through production gimmicks or deconstruction, so called deconstruction in theater, but uh, these plays are rediscovered because they have values that are au in some way maybe it has to do with the political establishment of the times maybe it has to do with something geopolitical global that's happening my, my problem with deconstruction and uh, assuming
1: you
0: know listeners uh, who are familiar with theater know know what that means it usually is a a, a radical interpretation of a play often a realistic play and it's not performed in a realistic manner, or it could be a classic also. My problem is that over many years, I have seen auteurist directors, by which I mean directors whose vision is all about themselves and their vision of the play, mm-hmm. rather than making sense to an audience. And the audience sits there puzzled, not knowing what they're supposed to do or how they're supposed to react or why this is being done to them, this deconstruction. Now, here's the problem. So often, the plays that are deconstructed are rarities that the audience has never seen, mm. plays that are not given, that are so infrequently given. Any, any kind of production, that the audience isn't familiar with them. If you're going to use deconstruction and it does have its place and its value, it has to be with the most familiar place in the repertory so the audience knows going in, they've already seen it. You could do it with Romeo and Juliet. You can do it with The Tempest. You could do it with Death of a Salesman. I may not like it, but the audience at least will understand the nature of the play Be and they'll have a frame of reference going in. Exactly, without that,
2: without that, it's sort of like doing a satire on something that people have no idea what you're making fun of. They don't know. They don't get the jokes because they don't know the original. (laughs) What? It's set. (laughs) What what do you mean? (laughs) I don't understand. Exactly. (laughs) Yeah. Like why? Why is that funny?
1: You spent some time in the advertising industry when you were a younger man
0: as a copywriter i was a copywriter and eventually as most copywriters do as you learn the biz and learn your way around recording studios and the film studios you get into do some some of your own producing and since i also was doing some after hours acting and knew a lot of actors and musicians uh, i had a lot of fun doing that and is I got it true pretty good
1: at it. is it true that you came up with a very famous slogan for a very popular cheese company.
0: Uh, It is true.
1: And can you tell our (laughs) listeners what that is?
0: Well, I wrote the once famous, even ubiquitous tagline, America Spells Cheese... K R A F T. Congratulations! That's fantastic. I think I will put that on my tombstone, <laughs> which is <laughs> one reason I've decided I'm going to be cremated. So, uh,
1: <laughs> well, yeah. congratulations! That, that you're you. right. That was ubiquitous yeah. for a while. If,
0: if only they paid us royalties, but they don't. you know they do not. Oh, no, yeah. no. Advertising, uh, like writing for the movies or TV, is work for hire. You don't get wow. royalties. You don't you, you get paid up front. That's it. You're right.
1: I also understand, Jonathan, that you appeared on the Antiques Roadshow once. I did. Were you a finder of a piece, or were you a appraiser? appraiser Oh, no, 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 no. I was a
0: finder. I was was someone who brought something, and I was a star of the Antiques Roadshow. They had me on last on that episode. Oh, that's always good. I think it was uh, 1999 or 98 or something like that, so it's already... Twenty years, and and there's a theater connection to this too. Uh, if any of uh, your listeners know who Windsor McKay was is, and the famous American comic strip Little Nemo in Slumberland, and Windsor McKay was an extraordinary artist, line drawer. And this was a fantasy trip. Little Nemo was a, a, a fantasy comic strip. Little Nemo was a little boy of four or five years old. And he would go to bed and have these fantastic dreams in which he was the captain of an airship. And the airship would take him to Mars and take him around the moon and take him on all sorts of adventures. And of course, there was a whole set of subsidiary characters. And... Windsor McKay was a master of fantastic perspective drawings. And these were he would write them for the, the Sunday comics and so they were, you know, big full page strips published in full color. We're talking the era of nineteen oh six or nineteen oh seven when the Little Nemo first appeared and it continued to run until the late nineteen twenties. Meanwhile, Windsor McKay was inventing animated film, animated cartoons oh. with a character called Gertie the Dinosaur. Anywho, when I was twenty years old, I was performing in a summer stock theater near the shores of Lake Sunapee, New Hampshire. We were on a, at the end of a rural road where an, a large old barn had been converted to a theater, and we would sometimes would rehearse outdoors and. I, I kid you not, cows would wander into our rehearsal, <laughs> <laughs> rehearsal area. Anyway, the, the barn and the attached big old farmhouse had been the summer residence of a once famous American actor named Billy B. Van. And Billy B. Van had started in blackface and minstrel shows and gone on to do a lot of Broadway comedy and early silent films and he played there was a musical adaptation of Little Nemo in Slumberland and uh, with music by Victor Herbert who was the great oh. the great operetta composer and Billy B Van played one of the principal roles in it one day when i had nothing better to do i was exploring a storage shed beneath the barn and there were cases and crates of things and that included typed copies of a lot of Billy B. Van's old vaudeville routines and some glass plate photographs that included Pony Express riders and Native American teepee camps out on the Western Plains, Mm. and completely unprotected, six pieces of standard artist's board comprising three Sunday comic strips, Little Nemo and Slumberland, original black and white pen and inks, hand-drawn by Windsor McKay with the New York Herald Tribune copyright on it because they were the ones who, who published it, all personally autographed to Billy B. Van from oh, Windsor ooh. McKay. And okay. I knew who Windsor McKay was. And so I went to the producer who owned the, the theater and the director, and I said, I found some things I was in that old storage shed I would like to buy from you. And he said, oh, I haven't looked down there. Just take whatever you want. I... And I said, no, 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 I think you should, you should look. I think this might be something of value. And he said again, oh, just take whatever you want. And I didn't ask him a third time. And I, took, <laughs> I took my little Nemos, and uh, they ended up when uh, Antiques Roadshow finally came close to Chicago, it was actually Madison, Wisconsin, went up there, I had a sister who lived in Madison, so we went and stayed. we all went to the Antiques Roadshow, and I, I'd been saying, i have been saying to all my friends for years, you know, when I, I'll take these on the Antiques Roadshow one day, and, I, and I'll end up on TV, they'll take one look, and I'll go straight to TV, and that's exactly what happened. <laughs> Wow, and, uh, they were worth a considerable amount of money then, and and the price has gone up since. So. And you still own them? I still own them. They're, Do you have them
1: on display? I have in your them. Home? On,
0: I have them on my wall, hanging over my my antique eighteen twenty George Washington partner desk. Oh, oh, yeah.
1: wow. fantastic stuff! Yeah. Do you have a philosophy about? theatrical criticism. When you approach a play and then you sit down with a blank page in front of you and you've got, what, 300 to 500 words to put it all together? Who are you thinking about when you're writing that? Are you thinking about the consumer? Are you thinking about the theater goer? Are you thinking about the theater artist? What's your approach and philosophy towards writing theatrical criticism?
0: I don't know. I'm thinking about the whiskey I'm going to have when I'm finished with the damn review. <laughs> bravo. <laughs> no, bravo! no. no Cheers. No.
1: Yeah.
0: <laughs> I, I try to write plainly enough and clearly enough so that readers of my reviews, let's call it the audience who's going to potentially buy tickets, will understand what I'm thinking and why I'm thinking it. But I think also that I am writing because I started out as an actor and I acted professionally for many years and I've been a dramaturg, a literary manager and I've also had a few things of my own produced. I think I also write with the theater artists in mind, which is one reason that I do not believe in attack criticism. I have never practiced it myself. I don't think anyone in Chicago that I know of, writing on a regular basis, is doing attack criticism now. But we have, back in the heyday of the reader, there were famously several you know, slash-and-burn critics, attack mm-hmm. critics. The catchphrase we used to joke about this is you know, the critic who says, I, I tore out her heart and stomped on it, you know, in terms <laughs> of how they reviewed something. It's easy to tear something apart and seem very smart and witty while you're doing it. I think I've done that twice. The shows deserved it, Mm -hmm. but it doesn't matter because I didn't feel good doing it. Mm -hmm. I didn't feel good doing it, so I I haven't done that. My overriding philosophy, no matter who is reading my material, is that theater, like life itself, is not all black and not all white. Almost everything is some shade of gray. And my job as a theater critic is to explain what pleased me and excited me about a performance, a production, what I thought worked and what I thought didn't work as well and why. And it's not about my being smart uh, or sassy. Here's the thing. My typical review in the Windy City Times is 450 words. Now, the great critics of yesteryear, when there were many, many more daily newspapers, and they each had a professional theater critic, and they would see a show, and they would go back to the office, and overnight, they'd write not 450 words, they'd write 1,000 words, or 1,200 words, and they'd be good words, you know? And that would be in the paper the next morning, or the next afternoon's edition. Well, we don't do that anymore. And nobody, not even Chris Jones in the Chicago Tribune, who certainly is the best known and the most prominent of Chicago's current theater critics, not even Chris gets 1,200 words. He occasionally, he might get a 1,000 for something, but not usually. And in the smaller publications, the weeklies and so forth, like the Windy City Times, we do 450 words, which has become a very generous review. Time Out Chicago, when they used to print it, were 250 word reviews. So 450 words is generous and yet it's not enough words for me to be stylish showing off myself to be witty and turn a phrase for the sake of being witty and turning a phrase. If that takes 10 words and I could otherwise in those 10 words write one sentence about the costume design or the sound design or something, some other technical aspect, then I am merely showing off to feature myself and my wit and my style prior rather than write about the play. So what gets cut is, let's call it style. And if I have a style, it is very, very direct. Every word counts. Sometimes every syllable counts. And I try to make it crystal clear what I thought worked and what didn't and why. This is especially important with new work, which is extremely prominent in Chicago. About half of what is done week in, week out, month in, month out, year after year, about 50% of what we see in Chicago are new works, often created by an ensemble or a local writer, new works that the audiences here have not seen before. So doing some sort of analysis. And I generally will approach the work first, rather than the production elements or even the acting. The level of acting in Chicago over the years has gotten very consistently good. It is rare, even in our non-equity houses, which and most theaters in Chicago still are non-equity, non-union, it is rare to see a really bad performance. Agreed.
1: Yeah, yeah. absolutely yeah. agreed. Yeah. We yeah. go to a lot of things, Frank, yeah. you and I, and... Yeah. Even if we disagree about the play itself, mm-hmm, we're almost true. always consistently complimentary about the performers. Yeah, we've seen
2: some shows that we were not
0: crazy about, but we liked all the performers yeah, yeah. in the show. Yeah, so almost, you're
1: almost right. without question. Yeah, yeah. Yeah.
0: Separating what the actor does from how the director has guided the performance, that's one of
1: the most difficult things to do. Reading your reviews and listening to your Dueling Critics program, I always find you, Jonathan, to be fair, thoughtful, and you offer supportive criticism. I try Uh, to, thank you. It's always well backed up and well founded in the basics of theater and theater history and all the things that you know about. If you hadn't selected a life and career in theater, what else would you have liked to have done? You were a very young man when you made the commitment to study, and uh, obviously were going to devote your life to it. But was there something else you might have liked to have done? I, I might have
0: stayed in advertising, and I probably would have risen fairly high in the ranks. It was fun work if you have to have a nine-to-five job it's probably about as uh, and you have any creative bones in your body it's Mm. probably about as good as it gets Mm. the pay is pretty good and there are a lot of perks that go with it my father would love to have seen me be a lawyer he thought he i would be a good lawyer i did think for a while and when i was still in my 20s of Making a career as a male prostitute, but I decided against that <laughs> hmm. Uh, hmm. I, I, I understand
1: that's a rather short career yeah,
0: well, it wasn't because I objected to the idea of someone paying me for sex you know it's just <laughs> the idea that I would have to have sex with whoever paid me that's uh,
1: a, yeah, you know. that's the drawback. <laughs>
0: That's what I, there's I, still time. I was there's, no, not not at my age, uh, Frank. Well, no, no, you know, there's a there's a there's, market for almost market every day. For everything. I, Frank, absolutely. you might be able to
1: find something to hook him up with. I'll yeah. make some calls. All right, in Serbia, maybe, or the Dalmatian <laughs> maybe. coast, maybe. Yeah. you talked about storefront theaters <laughs> and many of them here in Chicago being non-equity. Of course, we also have a burgeoning Broadway series mm-hmm. in Chicago where we often get pre-Broadway tryouts of very big shows. The Cher Show, Tootsie. I producers mean, started here. Producers started Spam-a-lot here. started yeah, here. Yeah, indeed. Do you think that large commercial productions deserve a more critical eye than storefront theater because of well i think because of the ticket price you know the consumer mm. is putting out an awful lot of investment to go see one of these broadway performances yep. Yep. do you think that they need to be looked at with a, a bit more of a microscope
0: not really i don't and it begins with the vehicle itself Gary, you and Frank mentioned how Chicago has become a regular tryout town, which it didn't used to be. Frankly, all credit to the Nederlander organization, which is now the major force. Broadway in Chicago is their brand yeah, name, they but it named a the theater the, after the Nederlander yeah. organization. Right, the Oriental last February became the James M. Nederlander mm-hmm. Theater, and it is their doing over the course of the last 20 years that has remade. Chicago's downtown commercial theater district. And they've done a hell of a good job about it, and it's benefited all of Chicago theater. You know, there was a time when the big commercial theaters and the smaller nonprofit theaters, what we call off-loop or storefront theater, you know, ne'er the twain shall meet. But many, many years ago, largely through the League of Chicago Theaters, they realized we're all in the same boat. The size of the boat may be different, and the bells and whistles may be different. But we're all after an audience that will put cash on the nose to see a show. And if one of us gets an audience, it's going to benefit all of us and, uh, in, and, and the industry as a whole. So now everybody's on uh, largely on the same wavelength. Sure. That's the word. Wave, that's an old radio word. It isn't is. It's not a wavelength. But to your question, it's going to begin with the vehicle. Let's say a new musical comes to town, and either, you know, Jekyll and Hyde was one that did not work when it was first tried out in Chicago. You know, the producers was brilliant, didn't need to have much done to it at all. So the deal is, does the story work? Does the structure work? But it's the same if you're going to a 45-seat storefront theater, and they're doing a new play. Does it work? Musical or non-musical? Does the structure work? does this make sense? So that part of the critical process is going to be the same. And I'm not going to be tougher on a new work that's in a large commercial theater. I'm not going to be tougher on it there than I would be at an off-loop theater. Mm. You don't expect a smaller off-loop theater to have the fantastic bells and whistles of the production, the design elements, and so forth. And sometimes a show will come to town where the design elements just look cheap, and you can see where the producers have saved money. And you say that, too. This really looks shabby or doesn't look very impressive. It's not a very exciting physical production. Again, it's rarely about the talent. Whether the talent is coming out of New York or sometimes they. Many of the shows now hold casting calls in Chicago, so you get a few local people in it or wherever they're coming from. You know, the caliber of talent is very high. And the energy level in a Broadway show typically is quite, quite different than an off-loop theater. And partly it's because a Broadway production is in, in Chicago. They're playing a 1900 or 2400 seat theater. And you need to just push out that energy. And sometimes it's, it's too much. And that energy level would just overwhelm you at a 50 seat theater. Sure. So, so the balance is different. But I think the approach of the reviewer needs to be the same. If something doesn't work, you have to say it doesn't work. Again, in my philosophy, you don't attack the artists. You say, this needs to be changed, this isn't working, the intermission is in the wrong place, or you don't need an intermission. You don't attack them more severely. Very interesting.
1: I have to ask you, Jonathan, about a show that we just saw, and I'm sure you just saw, Ms. Black for President at the Steppenwolf Theater. Can you give me your thumbnail opinion about that? I know that you wrote a review. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I'd like to just hear briefly what well, you what you thought of the production as a whole.
0: Well, I thought it was not much of a play, but a hell of a production.
1: It was definitely was a happening, great. wasn't it? It? Was,
0: it was a happening. The interesting thing that was, you know, there are two authors, you know, uh, Terrell Alvin McCraney, who played the title role, Ms. Black, but also co-authored. He co-authored it with his director Tina Landau, who also collaborated with him for the brother sister plays. So uh, they're they're an old team, and she's old enough to remember Joan Jett Black, and 1992 in the campaign for president. But Terrell Alvin McCraney is not. <laughs> so it was her concept. It's a great a great adventure, and they have made it, of course, reflect certain current things going on in the United States politically. It is a history play, but it also is more than a history play. And the lobby, you know, display was a history of the gay rights movement going back to to Stonewall, particular emphasis on the, the drag aspects, which is just one of the many communities under the LGBTQ umbrella, I enjoyed it. I remember, of course, the campaign. I was here in 1992. I was not yet writing for the Windy City Times, but the Windy City Times covered it. So there were several gay papers then that, that covered Joan Jet Black because she had started her performing career in drag as... Uh, it, 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 uh, uh, Terrence Smith is the real mm-hmm. is the performer's mm-hmm. name, and his drag persona is Joan Jett Black and Terrence began his career performing in Chicago, and the the gay papers here gave him all sorts of coverage when he did his performances and routines at various bars and various clubs, and all of a sudden, you know, he's running for president, and he gets a little <laughs> national attention, though, you know, mainstream media still, still didn't cover him. So this is old news to, to us, and of the papers who wrote about Joan Jet Black, back in the day, the Windy City Times, is the only one that is still around. So I enjoyed it. It was kind of a walk down memory lane. I thought the performers were terrific. And here you have a case of non-binary individuals playing roles, non-cisgender casting, women playing men, men playing women, and like I say, some uh, using they, them, their non non binary personal identifications. And it's suitable and it works. It's not a deconstruction of anything because it's a new work. Yeah. yeah. Like I say, uh, not much of a play, a hell of a party. I have an idea they may want to, Steppenwolf might want to take this someplace with Terrell Alvin McCraney, Tina Landau are both distinguished and nationally known artists. They've been nominated for Tony Awards. The idea of having a play like this running in New York during a presidential election year, Mm -hmm. I'm sure has not slipped the thinking of the powers that be at Steppenwolf and whoever their potential commercial. I'm I'm sure. But I think to be successful in New York, you would need to do a little deeper background on who Terrence Smith was, not so much is, though he's still very much alive, and still does. Joan Jet Black,
1: yeah, living in San Francisco, I yeah, believe. Yeah,
0: but a, a little more information on how he developed this persona, and I think a little more of the of the LGBTQ politics that led to the campaign and the eventual split between the candidate and the Queer Nation. Gay activist party, if it goes on, I think they need to do a little expanding. Yeah, yeah. yeah. But don't change the party.
1: Theater artists often complain about critics and reviews. Many of them that we've had on our show don't even read them or are repulsed by them or find them to be damaging. Having spent months and sometimes years of their lives solely devoted to creating a piece or a project what do you say to those that feel critics are not necessary? Hmm. I'll uh. tell you, I'll, 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 I'll read you a couple of things. A very famous artistic director who I won't name said reviews are absolutely needed. They are a crucial part of the process. Pauline Kale liked to say, <laughs> famous film critic. Right. In the arts, the critic is the only independent source of information. The rest is advertising. Yeah,
0: here's the deal. Not so many years ago, 15, 20, we didn't have social media. I grew up in Chicago when it had four major daily papers. Plus things like the New Daily Herald out in the suburbs and The Economist on the South and the, the Chicago Defender. But beyond those, you also had you know four universal daily newspapers, and each one of them had a full-time salaried on-staff theater critic as well as a music critic. New York had eight daily papers. Now New York has three daily newspapers. Chicago has, one and a half. I think (laughs) the Sun-Times, unfortunately, is about Uh half a paper. The Tribune is now the only paper in Chicago that has a full-time, on-staff, salaried theater critic, which makes Chris Jones, who I think is an extremely capable critic and an extremely capable and hard-working reporter and analyst. The Tribune certainly is the most important single review in town for many productions, but not for all productions. There are certain smaller niche theaters for whom a review in the Windy City Times, or The Reader, or New City is as important or more important than a review in the Tribune or the Sun-Times. But before there were social media, the critics were the way that you got the word out. Other than advertising, it was the theater critics. A good theater critic will Be consistent in the way he or she approaches, or they, as some might be today, Mm -hmm. as he or she or they approach any play, whether it's a big commercial production or a small off-loop theater. A good theater critic will, over an extended period of time, uh, readers, followers, will know what his or her politics are. Is he or she liberal or conservative? It's not that you're promoting candidacies or so forth. It has to do with your view of society and so forth. And you need to be consistent. And readers will know what your approach is. My approach, I generally start with the literature itself, the nature of the the writing and the production. It may not necessarily be my lead sentence, which might be about my overall impression of the production, but then I'll go into the, the material itself. Consistency, so that a reader knows you follow Critic A, and I will like whatever Critic A likes, and I will not like whatever Critic A doesn't like. Or it may be, I will like whatever Critic A doesn't like. Mm-hmm. You go either way, either way, as long as you are consistent. Sure. Mm -hmm. And there still is value to that. This is a, a, a different age. There are fewer daily papers. There are even fewer weekly papers. There are fewer reviews. The Windy City Times used to have six a week. Now we have four a week, reviews a week, the economics being what they are. Anybody can blog. Anybody can tweet. Anybody can put up something on Facebook. The difference is between a personal opinion and and educated or informed opinion. Now, a critic's opinion is still a personal opinion, but in theory, you have some chops. You know something about theater history and theater literature. You have some depth. If the situation calls for it, you can compare this production of The Tempest or this production of Long Day's Journey in Tonight, or this production of Tom Stoppard's Arcadia with the one done by so-and-so 10 years ago. You don't need to do that. You know, Comparisons can be odious. They're separate productions. But you have a depth of knowledge should you be required to draw on it. It gives you a depth of experience. A critic should never be fixed in bricks his opinion. This is the only way to do a Gabler. This is the only way to do Hamlet. No, there are countless ways, countless interpretations. And you have to be open. You know, one of our most distinguished critics, not in Chicago, but nationally, John Lahr, son of the cowardly lion, Bert Lahr, <laughs> uh-huh. and the very, very distinguished critic for, for the, the, New Yorker. the New Yorker, The New Yorker for many, many years, wrote a book, a collected, the collected theater. Uh, he wrote several volumes collecting his, his, his theater criticism. But the one I'm referring to, this title was Astonish Me! Exclamation point. I go to the theater as a theater critic. I don't want to be disappointed. I want you to amaze me. I want you to engage me, astonish me, make me walk out full of the wonder of your production, whether it's happy or sad. I use my intelligence to analyze a production, but I'm always looking for that production that just hits me in the guts. And sometimes that happens and I put my pen down and I barely take any
1: notes and you just let it happen to you. What's um, the last production that hit you in the gut?
0: It, well, you know, they, they, they've all hit me in the gut in various ways. A few weeks ago, I saw Barbara Robertson, one of our most distinguished mm-hmm. uh, actors uh, in, a, in a musical new to Chicago called Queen of the Mist, about the first woman, a 63-year-old woman, to go over Ni- Niagara Falls in a barrel and live. And that was in 1903 or 1904, whenever it was. The music—it was really an opera, book, music, and lyrics by Michael John Locke. very distinguished. Went on a little bit too long. I had some picks, but
1: the performance was
0: dazzling, and the production was wonderful and 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 a very a very severe, kind of physically severe production. But I. I really loved it. I saw a new little musical at Underscore Theater. They've opened a tiny little 50-seat storefront on Clark Street near Wilson after using another space for several years. And they did a new musical called The Ballad of Lefty and Crab. And it wasn't perfect in a lot of ways, but it was set late 1920s, the transition from silent movies to talking movies, and two vaudeville comedians, a team, a double act, they used to call it, who decide to give up vaudeville and go into the movies, and they no sooner get to Hollywood, and Hollywood splits them up. One is good-looking, and they want to make him a leading man, and the other is a tubby guy, and they want to make him Fatty Arbuckle. And you know neither one of them is happy being on his own. They're a great double act. So it's about that. And it, imperfect, but the songs... And the verbal nonstop puns and plays on words, that was lovely. Another musical, Six, the production about the Queen, Queen King, King Henry VIII's Six, Six Wives, Wives. at the Chicago Shakespeare Theater, big dazzling production. And I just thought it was lots of fun. It's it's not entirely accurate, but that doesn't matter. It's <laughs> a, it's you know, the the six wives of Henry the as as rock and roll stars, contemporary oh, rock and oh, roll stars. Wow. Yeah. Lots of fun, very, very yeah. imaginative stuff.
1: Frank, so. do you like reviews? Do you like the fact yeah. that we have critics? Oh well yeah. I mean Do you find it valuable I for do. the theater artist?
0: As a
2: theater goer, absolutely, because I'll look up the reviews to see if it's something I want to go see or not. As an artist, I did have some of my shows reviewed, and I was lucky in the sense that they were all pretty you
0: good. <laughs> you always
1: got good reviews, did. didn't you?
0: So, you know, yeah, so I like them. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, you know, I've, I've been a playwright also, and a lyricist, librettist, and I've been an actor, so I have been reviewed. Sometimes well, sometimes not. I remember a production, this goes back to my days at at Tufts University in the Boston area, and one of those local little free papers, a precursor actually of the Phoenix, which became a very big and famous paper in Boston and they reviewed this production and it was a large cast, uh, Chips with Everything by Arnold Westgurry, 1950's play about Royal Air Force recruits from working class up against you know upper class officers who were very snobbish and so forth. This one review singled out three actors, uh, two of my colleagues, uh, I won't mention their names because they'll be meaningless, but the review was a devastating negative pan of the show. And one sentence says, occasionally actors Jonathan Abarbanel and blank and blank show signs of knowing what acting is all about. <laughs> Period. That was the only good... <laughs> so, of course, I love the review. <laughs> yeah.
1: Well, I, I'm, I am skeptical of theater artists who don't read their reviews. I think that there is something to be learned. As I said, they're crucial to the process in some way. You don't have to agree... But I think that you do yourself a disservice by not well, actually reading I think some people them.
2: maybe got burned by the snarky people you were talking about. And so they, why do I have to read a person who's trying to be clever and just being mean? I think if a person would uh, get reviews like we've been talking about here that actually would be helpful with suggestions and say what worked and what didn't work, I think they'd be very valuable. I know when I would coach the speech team, every week we would go out to tournaments and students would get written ballots, which is very much like getting a review. Yeah. The helpful ones would be the ones that didn't say loved it, loved it, loved it that said okay you need to work on this you need to work on this and then Mm. you could rework things and then go out the next week so that can be helpful and I think if more reviewers were like that people wouldn't just sort of dismiss them but maybe they got burned one too many times.
1: Reviewers
0: come in all shapes and sizes and all standards of knowledge and information. I know theater critics reviewers here in Chicago and elsewhere who cannot Go to see a new play that they've a a world premiere, a new work, unless they've read the script in advance. And they will ask the theater, Will you send me a copy of the script? And the theater usually will. I never do that because of my many years working as a literary manager, as a dramaturg, and working with several hundred over the years, about 300 new plays and. American plays and musical which I've musicals which I've helped birth in one way or another I can go in and see a play that I've never seen before and instantly and generally correctly I know that sounds immodest uh, say well this is the structure works or doesn't work and this is why this the construction doesn't work or this, the structure other critics can describe a performance and make you see it and hear it and and that's like It's like tattooing soap bubbles. It's so difficult to make a reader or even a listener understand what excited you about that actor. I can't do it. That's the toughest thing I have to do is to talk about a performance and make it seem vibrant. But I can do the literary bit. So different critics have different approaches. And I know theater critics who don't understand because they've never actually studied the structure of plays or playwriting they don't understand why a play does or doesn't work and therefore their response can be negative but not at all specific mm. which isn't which mm. isn't helpful right. which isn't help. and in a city like chicago which has so very much new work that's particularly particularly mm. important mm-hmm.
1: Well, if you'd like what you hear and you'd like to support Booth One in bringing you the best in lively conversation about the arts and popular culture and amazing guests like my friend Jonathan Abarbanel, Mm -hmm. you can go to our website at www.booth-one.com. Click on the donate button. It's easy. It's quick. And it's fully tax deductible under our 501c3 status as a nonprofit entity. Any and all contributions would be greatly appreciated. Let me finish with this quote from A.O. Scott. Which I very much like. A.O. Scott, longtime film critic for the New York Times, also has written for many other publications. He does a lot of online work now. Criticism is a habit of mind, a discipline of writing, a way of life, a commitment to the independent, open ended exploration of works of art in relation to one another and the world around them. As such, it is always apt to be misunderstood undervalued, and at odds with itself. Artists will complain, fans will tune out, but the arguments will never end. I think that's very much to the point of what you do for a living, Jonathan.
0: Yes, I think that's a wonderful <laughs> a wonderful quote, yeah. a wonderful explanation. I will bring it down to earth with a, with a joke told by... Members of the International Association of Theater Critics. It was asked how many critics does it take to change a light bulb? And the answer is none. None of them will do it. They all insist the original lighting was infinitely superior. <laughs> <laughs>
1: Well, visit www.booth-one.com for prior episodes and more information about our program. Jonathan Abarbanel, thank you so very much Mm -hmm. for being our guest today. You're a fascinating individual.
0: Gary, thank you. Frank, thank you. This has been wonderful to be able to go on and on and on. I'm uh, sure I'll
1: see you at an opening night sometime soon. Okay. Thanks. For Booth One and Jonathan Abarbanel, this is Gary Zabinski. And
0: Frank
2: Taranjo.
1: Saying so long and keep listening. Mm -hmm.